Welcome to the Politics of Everything. I'm Amber Danes, your host and podcast producer. This is a half hour of power, a podcast dropping every week where I unpack the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment, quality, and much, much more. Our guests are seasoned in the field or topic of their choice, even if you've not heard of them yet. This is a non-partisan show. So while I love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate of ideas, this is not a purely blue, white, green program. Please subscribe, tune in and enjoy the politics of everything. Around 20 years ago, I did a whole master's thesis on philanthropic models that took me to leaders in this arena across the United States and Europe. While most of us take an impulsive approach to giving, a little bit of research into where your dollars will do the most good can make your donation hundreds or even thousands of times more effective. Enter The Life You Can Save, an organisation based in Australia and the US that helps people do just this by highlighting evidence-based, high-impact, cost-effective charities that save lives, reduce suffering and empower women. Today, my special guest is Charlie Bressler, co-founder of Peter Singer's The Life You Can Save. Charlie describes his career as not exactly linear. As a college student at New York University during the height of the Vietnam War, he was a political activist. Wanting to share his perspective with secondary school students, he got a master's degree from Harvard in social studies and education and taught for three years. For a variety of reasons, he decided teaching secondary school was not for him. Switching gears, he then went on to manage a tennis club and later wandered into a job as a psychology tech following in 1981 by graduate school at Clark University, where he received an MA and PhD in social and clinical psychology. This in turn led to a seven-year stint as a graduate professor of psychology. Fast forwarding to 1992, Bressler ran into his old childhood friend, George Zimmer, who enticed him to switch career paths and join his clothing company that had just gone public. He eventually became president of that company, but in 2008, He walked into Zimmer's office and told his lifelong friend he was done. He was ready to give up the chance to succeed Zimmer as CEO and make a move that was more in line with his desire to be part of producing a meaningful social change agenda. Bressler feels that the organisation that he now works with has a strong proof of concept, namely the life you can save can move a multiple of dollars invested in organisational infrastructure to the highly effective charities recommended on their website. In fact, for every dollar spent on their operations over the last eight years, they've been able to raise an average of approximately $12 to $17 to their recommended charities. And so without any further delay, I want to welcome to the Politics of Everything, Charlie Bressler. Welcome. Thank you very much, Amber, for having me on your podcast. And uh, I really appreciate my entry into Australia here. I can't get there physically, but it's nice to be talking with people in Australia. Of course. And where are you at the moment? I am in the far northwest corner of the United States near Canada. And it wasn't until a couple of days ago, weeks ago now, uh, in August, that the border opened up again, although there are still problems. But I sit very close to the border of Canada in the northwest corner. We love having international guests. And of course, you do normally have a lot more connections with Australia because of the organization that you're now part of. I'd love to go back a little bit. We we had a great snapshot, I guess, of your career and your studies later in life. But as a kid, what did young Charlie want to be? And did you achieve that? The short answer is no, I didn't achieve it. What I wanted to be was a professional athlete. 
And oddly enough, my mother was constantly encouraging me to become either a professional baseball player, which you don't have much of uh, or as much of in Australia, and or a professional tennis player. And oddly enough, my two of my childhood heroes were Australians, Ashley Cooper and Mal Anderson. And I doubt anyone except your older listeners might even know who they were, but they both won on successive years, the U.S. National Championships in tennis. So I very much wanted to be a tennis player. In those days, you didn't make a lot of money playing tennis, but that's what I wanted to do. Interesting. So we're going to fast forward a little bit. As I mentioned in your introduction, in 2008, you basically were sitting in a pretty sweet spot. You were going to take over from your friend, George Zimmer's business as CEO. What made you want to actually give it all up? What was the tipping point for you? It goes back, actually, to some of the events that you read about in your introduction. I think that even though I spent a long time working at the Men's Warehouse with a great group of people, I never felt completely comfortable there because I had always thought, not when I wanted to be a tennis player, but from my sophomore year in university, I'd always thought that I was going to do something of some social value. I didn't know exactly what it was. It might be helping people who were going to create some degree of structural change to address wealth inequality domestically or internationally. But I always thought I would have a career in teaching or doing something that contributed to making the world a better place. And although I enjoyed selling suits and it turned out to be a pretty lucrative career, it wasn't really consistent with my values. So as I turned 59 in 2008... Those of you that can do arithmetic or maths, as you say, can figure out how old I am now. Um, I said to myself, Jesus, Charlie, this, is, this isn't really what you should do. If you become CEO of this company, you're never going to do anything like what you thought you were going to do when you were younger. So I sort of- It's pretty brave though, I have to say. Like most people at that stage, probably more in Australia than the US where I know people have careers for longer, people are thinking about retirement. They're not even thinking about changing what they do. I had an example in my father who switched careers from a sort of middle-level business in uh, textiles to becoming a social worker, and in his 50s as well. But I also had the advantage of being married to someone who was really not particularly materialistic, was a family doctor and made a decent amount of money. And I wasn't overly materialistic, I don't think. So I'd gotten to a point where I had inadvertently made enough money that we really didn't need to make any more money. So I don't think it was really very brave at all. I think it was actually complacent that I didn't do it sooner. Mm, That's interesting that you look back and think of it that way. And of course, in 2011, you had that other turning point when you read Practical Ethics and The Life You Can Save by philosopher Peter Singer, who you obviously work with now. So much so that you actually wrote to Singer offering to help with his fledgling organization back then. How did you know that this was the right next step for you? I was very interested in politics and trying to figure out ways to improve the life of people in the United States and to mitigate some of what I perceive to be the damage of US foreign policy all, all throughout my life. And I felt like the political way was the right way, trying to create structural change, trying to influence politicians, etc. But after a lot of frustration and inactivity on my part and 
really, I guess, failure to really make a lot of inroads in that regard. I felt like doing a little bit well was better than trying to reach for the sky and make big changes. So when I read Peter's book, it really hit me, okay, we can't do as much as I would have had the ambition to do necessarily when I was younger, but we can save lives, we can reduce suffering, and we can empower women, and it's right in front of me. And so the life you can save seemed like an opportunity to get off of my grandiosity about changing the whole world and start changing a few lives. Yeah, it's that kind of thing where it's in your backyard and, you know, that's often what happens. You look everywhere else and you go, well, actually, there's something I can do right in front of me. And, of course, you say the life you can save is based on some simple beliefs and assumptions, the first of which is that through our effective donations, we can actually save lives of people that are dying every day that would not be dying with the simple interventions available already at our fingertips, particularly in wealthy nations like the US and Australia. And secondly, that we have an ethical obligation to use some proportion of our wealth and our privilege to save lives and reduce unnecessary suffering associated with what we call extreme poverty, where some people live on less than Australian equivalent of $2.50 a day. I know in Australia from personal experience, you know, we obviously have far greater social security measures, even during the pandemic, perhaps than the US is used to. We have had universal health care for, you know, over 40 years, but still, poverty obviously impacts a lot of more people than it needs to, particularly in 2021. How can philanthropy, I guess, start to change that immediately? What, what's the immediate impact that people can see when they, when they engage with an organisation like Life You Can Save? Well, I think there are a lot of ways. From my perspective, I divide philanthropy into sort of two buckets. One, there's philanthropy in the developed world where there's a lot of people suffering in places like Australia or the United States, particularly in the United States where we don't even have the social safety net that you all have in Australia or they have in the UK with the National Health Service. We don't have that in the United States. So philanthropy in the United States really aims at trying to influence public policy through not only politicians, but other people like my daughter who work in the policy sector. So there are ways to give money to try to nudge people, if you will, to make the state more responsible for alleviating suffering in our countries. I personally believe that in these wealthier countries, everybody should have decent housing, should have food security, access to healthcare like you all have in Australia, and that the government should not take over people's lives, but should provide through a very progressive taxation system on the wealthier people in society that allows for the creation of this safety net and this this adequate housing, good healthcare, food security. And in a sense, then, philanthropy maybe influencing certain politicians or people making public policy, but it also is kind of through a very progressive taxation system. But in the developing world, where there isn't necessarily the kind of potentially responsive governments in the near term or even medium term that we see in places like Australia, the United States, the United Kingdom, Philanthropy is necessary, and the kind of philanthropy which can really alleviate suffering is well-directed philanthropy at proven 
high impact, cost effective interventions that are very simple. So I think that I see the kind of philanthropy that's necessary in Australia, the United States as quite different than the kind of philanthropy that's necessary in the developing world. And in fact, most people might not use the word philanthropy for what I'm talking about. But in a way, if you ask very wealthy people about a very progressive taxation system with a high marginal tax rate, they experience it as philanthropy because they experience it often as people dipping into their pockets. Absolutely. And I guess, you know, traditionally philanthropy can be seen as something that's, you know, you you do something with, you get your name on a plaque because you donate to an arts organization or a food bank or something like that, where it sort of feels a bit strategic sometimes, particularly from wealthy people, or, you know, they've obviously got vested interests, like it might be sporting organizations or things like that, even if they're helping people at the grassroots level engage in those activities. It's hard to kind of relate for most ordinary people to giving if you're not what you call super wealthy, I think that's the challenge for a lot of people. How do you feel about that? It is really hard. And certainly COVID has not only thrown a lot of people in the developing world back into extreme poverty, but has hit an enormous amount of people, even in countries like Australia and the United States, really hard in the pocketbook. And I think if people can give 1% of their gross income to things that they really believe in, even if they're hard hit, that's an extraordinary effort. I mean, we see people like Bill Gates or Warren Buffett giving away tens of billions of dollars. But actually, when you think about it, if you take somebody who's making 35,000 Australian dollars and they give $350 a year to people who need the money more than they do. To me, that is a much more extraordinary effort than Bill Gates giving away $50 billion. So I think it's great when people who are not at all wealthy and are really struggling can help people in their lives or through giving to the kinds of charities that we promote. And I think that's an extraordinary effort. For people like myself, who are perceived as extremely generous by most people, I don't think it's really that big an effort because we still have a nice place to live. We still can go on holiday. We live, relatively speaking, a really nice lifestyle, even if it may not be the same as people who have equivalent wealth. So I applaud people giving away a little who have little, and I'm not as congratulatory towards the super wealthy or even the wealthy like Diana and me who give away a lot of money but still live quite well. Absolutely. I I remember years ago, uh, an entrepreneur I interviewed from South Africa actually said one of the hardest words in the English language is enough. I have enough. You know, I don't need a new car every year. I I don't need a, a super yacht. And so people's idea of wealth sometimes changes as they become more wealthy. And ironically, they might you know, not always, but might become less generous because they're always worried about keeping and maintaining wealth once they've achieved it. So I think it's a great point you make about just where you are today, giving a percentage that might actually make an impact to someone. And you also mentioned the idea that COVID obviously has changed a lot of people's financial reality. A lot of people are doing it tough or have lost their businesses, their homes, their incomes, or feel like they're on the brink because there is so much uncertainty. We really don't know when the pandemic will end or ease up. So what has that meant for giving? What sort of reality has that meant for the life you can save and and its commitments to people? 
Well, I, I think that the pandemic has done a really good job of making people realize how interconnected the world is. And it's obviously in not such a good way right now. I mean, the internet really created this sense that the world was interconnected, but nothing like a virus spreading throughout Asia and the United States and Europe and Australia and New Zealand, not nearly as rapidly as spreading in the rest of the world, but still having a debilitating effect on your mobility, your economy. I think that that sense of interconnectedness has increased people's sensitivity to people living in the developing world under really difficult conditions. I can't quantify what that's meant in terms of philanthropic donations. I do see a few of our recommended nonprofits that have done extraordinarily well in raising money in 2020. But I do have a really strong sense that people feel, for better or worse, more interconnected than they've ever felt before. Yeah. And of course, yeah, we're all sort of to varying degrees, obviously, um, some people are more privileged than others. Other people have been double vaxxed and beyond. But we are kind of all in this together, I guess, which makes it a bit unique to other sort of life events, which might happen, such as a war, where you've, unless you're in that war-torn country, you can see it on the news, but you can't necessarily relate to what that's like. One of the, I wanted to go back, if you don't mind, Amber, to this whole concept of wealthy people and philanthropy sure. and uh, materialism. One of the things that I think is really important to get across to people who are well off is when can they step off of what has been referred to as the hedonic treadmill? That if I get something nicer, a bigger house, a better car, uh, nicer jewelry, a bigger, more expensive holiday, that my life will improve. And that hedonic treadmill is endless, regardless almost of how much money you have. So one of the things we're trying to do is get people to at least step back and consider that the hedonic treadmill is a trap for them and that people who give away a good chunk of their wealth are often a lot happier than people who don't. And so it's not easy, as you point out, to step off of that treadmill. But once you do, the relief can be really significant. Yeah, you've probably seen it and experienced it. So you can talk talk to that with a, with a degree of knowledge, I imagine. I've seen a lot of people... Unfortunately, more people on the hedonic treadmill wanting more and more, even though they have a lot of money, than I've seen people step off it. But I've seen some extraordinary examples of people just saying enough, and I'm going to do something else besides just trying to make more money. And in fact, I'm going to start to give away a good chunk of what I've already gotten. Again, not because they're more compassionate necessarily, but because they begin to realize that that actually makes them happier. Absolutely. Changing tack a little bit, what role do you think government tax benefits and other concessions play in improving giving culture, I suppose? You know, some organisations, you know, they do, they promote end of of financial year tax time here was June 30 every year. And there's always a whole push from, you know, various charities and not-for-profits that are registered for DGR status to say, well, get your tax benefit in. Therefore, you know, you make your $5,000 donation or your $10 donation, you can get a tax receipt and that can, you know, reduce your tax bill. How do we make sure that that still has real impact regardless of whether the government's involved or not? And doesn't really make a difference in your experience, having it sort of like a kind of lure or a carrot to get you to donate? Do you have to get something out of it other than feeling good? Empirically, it does make a really big difference. In the United States, 
Our day of June 30th is December 31st. And December 31st is the biggest day for donations by far that we get when people finally realize, oh my gosh, I have to give my money to a nonprofit because that's how I'm going to get my tax benefit. So there is no doubt empirically that providing incentives like the June 30th incentive or the December 31st incentive creates uh, a really significant uh, philanthropy that would probably not be there without it, which is maybe quite unfortunate because the government could stop those benefits and use money that they get for some of the programs that I was talking about for domestic philanthropy or domestic relief, but it does play a significant role. Mm, Interesting. In terms of measurement, how do you suggest that those who give and even the organization that you're working with, how do you measure the impact of of giving? How do you actually go about doing that for those of us who are not aware of how that happens? Well, some organizations that have specific health interventions, like they're distributing a, um, a medication or they're running ads on television to get moms to bring their children to health centers, can do what's called a randomized controlled trial, which is the gold standard in science for determining whether something is successful. In essence, you have an experimental group which gets the treatment, the intervention, and and then you get a group which is random, they're randomly assigned, that doesn't get it. And then through inferential statistics, you just compare the amount of success in the group that gets the intervention versus not. But there are a lot of interventions that don't lend themselves to randomized controlled trials, and they're very expensive, and they're not 100% foolproof. I won't get into all of the problems with replicability in science, but they're a very good way of going about looking at whether something's effective. But short of that, I think common sense plays a very significant role. But I think nonprofits should be very transparent about, okay, this is how we're spending our money. These are the outcomes we expect to get. These are what we believe are the outcomes. These are the ones we can prove. These are the ones that we speculate we've got. These are the ones that we're trying to get next time. So I think wherever you're giving your money, even if you're giving your money in Australia versus the Democratic Republic of the Congo, one should expect a nonprofit to be able to specify what they're doing to get the outcomes that they want, and they should be able to suggest what those outcomes are and how much of that outcome they expect to get per dollar or per $100,000 or whatever the measure is. That's a great sort of, I guess, intro into that idea of, yeah, making sure we have impact, which I think a lot of people, you don't just want to set and forget. You do want to know that what, what you're giving, no matter how significant it is for you personally, actually makes a difference. And it's not just going on, you know, I guess there's always admin costs, but it's not going just on CEO salaries and things like that, although people should, of course, be paid. I don't, Most- don't think they shouldn't be. But most of us don't do that. I mean, all the research shows that if our neighbor asks us to give money to a like fun run they're doing, we don't really look into the efficacy of the nonprofit that they're supporting. Or we might go to a university. And even though in my case, like Harvard University has the most money of any university probably in the world, people still give money to their university when a student calls up and says, will you give, you know, a certain amount of money? 
And then a lot of us are also drawn to giving money to medical interventions because a family member was afflicted with an illness. We all saw the outpouring in the ice bucket challenge of for amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, even though it's an, I mean, it's a horrible, horrible disease, but it costs a fortune to do the research. And uh, when you think that you can restore a child's eyesight for $50, but people are not necessarily thinking about that. They're thinking about this dramatic event that happened. So I think one of the things that we ask people to do is take two steps backwards and think about the outcomes they're hoping to achieve and then take three steps forward and donate. Mm, no, that, that's great advice. I met uh, when I was doing my thesis a number of years ago, an Australian business owner who he basically wanted to give away all his wealth before he died. He'd been a very successful um, investment banker and was on the verge of retirement. And he obviously had to have the conversation with his family. So he had grown up children, a wife, and I guess there was probably some expectations about inheritance that he had to address. But he convinced him that was the way to go. Is that level of giving something that you see very often, particularly in the US? Or is it sort of an anomaly still? I mean, we talked about the benefits of giving away money and not sort of accumulating forever, but a lot of people do expect that, you know, their wealthy parents will give them all their wealth and even if they've got a great education and they've been to the best universities or colleges and they've got a house and a car, that that inheritance is coming their way. Does that, does that sort of stuff happen often in your experience? It, it does happen a lot. And in my experience, since I started working at The Life You Can Save, I've seen a significant number of people that have addressed this issue with their children and have told their children that they're going to get X amount of money, but that most of their money is going to be given away before they die. And I'm happy to say that most of the heirs respond quite positively. Now, I see a very select group of people where that is a close-knit family network where people share similar values, like in my family. Certainly my children are feeling like they've already had a lot of privilege and that the money that Diane and I have when we die should go, for the most part, to people in the developing world where it can do a tremendous amount of good. And so, but these are children that have already benefited a lot and who probably have had parents who've instilled those values. Is it common as a percentage of people who are wealthy? My guess is not, but I'm seeing a definite group of people for whom uh, they follow Warren Buffett's lead and uh, try to give away most of their money before they die. That said, Warren Buffett's children are still going to live a very privileged lifestyle. Absolutely. And my children have already led a privileged lifestyle. So again, I come back to not complimenting the wealthy or the super wealthy for their generosity, but actually applauding people who do a little bit out of very little amount of wealth. So, but I think it's great. And I think this trend of giving more is a way before you die and giving it to the very effective organizations is really important. And I have to say that it's a conversation that Diana and I are having all the time about our own wealth, even though it's not extraordinary like some people's wealth, it is something that we need to think a lot about. Absolutely. So who have been your greatest mentors? Is there one or two that's really stand out and what impact have they had in your life and your career? Well, clearly Peter Singer has to be 
probably number two on that list. Um, oh, number two. I was expecting yeah. him to be number well, one. <laughs> uh, number two, because he, because of my involvement with Peter and his book and all the work I've been doing for the last nine years as a volunteer executive director for The Life You Can Save has transformed my life and made it tremendously rich, not in material terms, but in emotional terms. And I was, I was leading a pretty self-serving existence before I encountered Peter. I was hopefully a very compassionate executive, but I was making a lot more money than people in our stores. And, um, you know, I was, I was really privileged. And although Diana was asking me to give away more money each year, we really didn't give a significant percentage of our annual income away. The other mentor, there's three other people I would mention, but the number one on the list is my wife because I met my wife in high school. Um, so we've been together for over 50 years and she's- That's incredible in this day and age particularly. <laughs> and she's continued to demonstrate uh, compassion, anti-materialism, concern for the downtrodden, um, particularly people um, in the developing world in spite of all the poverty in the United States and- she also is uh, a very smart person, so she's always emphasized effectiveness, even before we read Peter Singer. So I'd have to put her number one on my list. And then there are probably two other people that I feel like are deserving of mention. One is George Orwell, who really initially, when I was in university, helped me become aware of the problems of conveying information in a transparent and truthful way, which he first started uh, discovering in a negative way when he was in Spain in the 1930s. And so Orwell was a significant influence on my thinking about transparency and honesty and directness in communication. And then the other person is somebody that nobody on this call will likely or podcast will likely have heard of. And his name is Gabriel Colco, who is an American historian. But he woke me up to how much the United States in particular had benefited from many corrupt governments around the world that were turning over their natural resources to American corporations and really essentially taking them from the people in their own country. And I think that in the end had a lot to do with my being open to Peter's ideas when I first started encountering. So those are the people that I would cite. That's a nice mix of people to to kind of populate your your life and your journey in terms of mentors with. So a final thought or message for us on the politics of giving. I think what I want to say is that I believe, and again, I think a lot of people on the call would agree with me, that food security and adequate housing, basic health services, a secondary school education should be something that we can deliver to everyone in places like Australia and the United States. In that sense, though, we can't always distribute those things to people in the developing world. So it's really absolutely critical that we provide essential health services, educational services through philanthropy, clean water, sanitation, until such time as they can be provided in another way. But to put a perspective on it, the Americans, only Americans in this case, because that's the number I can cite, I can't cite the same number for Australia. But the United States individuals, not foundations, give away an amazing $300 billion annually. And all it would take to take people out of extreme poverty worldwide would be $175 billion. So the means are there 
if dealt with effectively to really help people not necessarily get all those basic services, but not die of diarrhea or treatable malaria or pneumonia, and to take the 14,000 children that are dying every day of preventable illnesses, over 5 million a year. And even if we can't provide all the services, we certainly have the wherewithal if the money is given effectively to provide enough to make that number go down dramatically. And unfortunately, given COVID, the number is starting to go back up again. Well, that's a perfect uh, summation of what to do next. With Now you've heard Charlie Bressler talking about the politics of giving. If you do want to connect further, there will be some details on my show notes, as always, on the life you can save and Charlie himself. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Until next time, keep well. Thanks so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed the politics of everything, I thrive on your feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network through Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. I'm always on the hunt for new and diverse guests. So if you or someone you know has a fresh idea you're busting to get out there, please email me at amber at amberdanes.com and my crew will get back to you very soon.